Well, as I was saying, we turn to Exodus chapter 20 this morning in order that uh, we might continue our series in the Ten Commandments. We are in the Eighth Commandment, but once again I'm going to read to you the, the Big Ten and uh, have these stuck in your brain, I hope, by the end of our series so that they are definitely with you throughout life. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Let us pray together once more. Our Father, we pray that the wisdom of this word might be able to deliver us in this world from the grip of lies. We pray that you would free our minds, our hearts, and all things to your holy service. We pray, therefore, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of this, your word, for your name's sake. Amen. I'd like to begin by telling you about the early days of a new nation, a nation where they were committed to central economic planning, common land, common labor, common goods, just prices, as they called them, set and enforced by law, and just wages. Their crops were brought to a common storehouse and then equally distributed among all the people so that there would be no one short or in need. The land was held in common and worked by the community. Everyone was to work according to his ability and receive according to his and his family's need. Does anyone, by the way, know the name of this emerging nation? America is correct. That is exactly right. Governor Bradford recorded in his diary the catastrophe that ensued in Plymouth Plantation as the New England pilgrims found that the plans that they had made back in England were not going to be nearly as successful in practice. They had been given the charter, actually, in, in, in England 
uh, they received it, and it might seem like a Christian arrangement at first sight, that the common land was to be shared by all, common labor would be contributed by all, common crops enjoyed by all, and this would be in a close and well-governed society where everyone knew each other. What could go wrong? Well, Bradford records it all for us. Um, Most did what was required of them, though the slackers showed up late for work in the fields and the hard workers resented it. People called in sick. Women did not want to do field work and so did other labor serving the whole community. But everyone was happy to claim his equal share of production, even though production was poor. It's been said that capitalism distributes rewards unequally, but communism distributes miseries equally. That was not true among the Pilgrim Fathers uh, because of the other constraints of uh, weather and sickness and other things. Some people starved and died. It was a desperate time, in other words, with no room for error. The governor, William Bradford, decided that if the colony was going to survive, they had to disobey their charter. And so, as Bradford recorded it, they set corn, every man for his own particular, to plant, and assigned every family a parcel of land. And that simple change to private ownership, wrote Bradford, quote, had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability. Whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. You want the women and the children to go into the field? Suddenly, when it was their corn, off they went. Bradford later reflects, writing, the experience was... uh, Sorry, the experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years, and that amongst godly and sober men may well prove the vanity of that conceit of Plato's and other ancients applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of property and bringing in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. For this community arrangement was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort, and for men's wives to be commanded to do the service for other men as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc., they deemed it a kind of slavery. Neither could their husbands well brook it. And it would have been worse if they had been men of another condition. That is to say, they were at least godly and civil men. But let none object that this is men's corruption and nothing to the course itself. Don't don't just say, well, the problem was with the men, not with the plan, he says. I answer, seeing all men have this corruption in them, God, in his wisdom, saw another course fitter for them. It's that course that we're going to be discussing today, a course of 
economics, productivity, thrift, and generosity, which the Lord describes in his word, all summarized under this heading in the Eighth Commandment, saying simply, thou shalt not steal. Two simple words in the Hebrew, summarizing a large volume of biblical ethics soon to follow. The Bible deals, of course, with our money, our property, our work, our attitude toward material things, honesty in school as well as in business. It establishes property rights, personal responsibility, and guides us in fair restitution when we have not respected the property of others. As the Heidelberg Catechism from 1650 put it, God forbids in this commandment, I put it in your bulletin, by the way, if you want to trace down the scripture references, very important, not only outright theft and robbery punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, maybe even legal, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Our own larger catechism, by the way, names several more things, including man-stealing or kidnapping people to enslave them, receiving stolen goods, bribery, extortion, frivolous lawsuits, envying the prosperity of others, wasteful living and gambling, and all taking advantage of other people. Well, I could go on, obviously, and it's a very contemporary issue, is it not? For example, a typical household represented here spends well over $1,000 a year at the store every year just paying for the theft of other people. 20 years ago, it was less than half of that, even adjusted for inflation. Back in 2002, nearly 20 years ago, retailers lost $31 billion to theft. By 2019, it was $51 billion, and as of last year, it was $62 billion lost to theft. In other words, things are rapidly accelerating. And that does not take into account the cost of employees who don't actually labor diligently all those 40 hours they're paid for and so forth. Well, too bad for those retailers, you say. Oh, no. All those costs are passed on to you. Across industries, goods and services in general cost somewhere around 15% more than they would if people simply kept the Eighth Commandment. Well, the Bible has a great deal to say about both the proper and improper use of money and goods. Paul summarizes it for us very nicely in a single sentence in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, on the one hand, let him who stole steal no longer, but, he says, on the other hand, rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. This commandment, you see, requires a proper respect toward goods and people and the right use of uh, them for each other. The commandment both forbids and requires. It's not merely about not stealing. It's generally speaking about stewardship. That is to say, the right, wise, honest, and good use of those resources committed to our care. A steward, of course, is somebody who cares for somebody else's property. He's not free to use it however he pleases, but must do so according to his master's directions. And this is our situation exactly. 
Whatever we possess is committed to us at the moment, temporarily, but we remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and therefore, well, to paraphrase Jerry Bridges, there are three basic attitudes toward our possessions. One says, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. That's the attitude of a thief. The second says, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. It's the attitude of an American. And the third is, what's mine is God's, and I'll use it. It is the commitment of the Christian. Christians who are called to live generously, to work, to enjoy not only the fruits of their labor, but also that they may have something to give him who has need. And so I'll summarize this commandment uh, in this way. I have stolen three points from John Wesley in his own sermon for uh, these matters and also managing his own finances. I've, I've given it to you before, and the longer I live, the more I think that there's so much wisdom here. To earn all you can, save all you can, and to give all you can, is how Wesley put it. To earn all you can, to save all you can, to give all you can. Let's consider these briefly by way of covering this commandment, and then we'll consider how this speaks to, again, a big lie in our world today. First, earn all you can. The Eighth Commandment is based on the principle of personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Laboring diligently and productively for the benefit of ourselves and others. Paul, for example, writes, aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as you were commanded, that you may walk properly to those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. This is the positive emphasis in the scripture. And where it says, uh, he also says, we were, when we were with you, we commanded, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, on a license plate down there in the parking lot, in case you forget the reference. We must work diligently and productively to provide for ourselves and others. This is, as I say, the basic instruction of the Bible, earn all you can. Not that it's simply a matter of income, of course. It is being a matter of profitable servants. Colossians 3, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So, the positive emphasis of the commandment, God promises a reward for our labor, a reward for which we ought to work and long and this is one of the big problems in Plymouth Plantation, where it turned out people were rewarded equally with a guaranteed basic income for themselves and their families, no matter how much or how little productivity was involved. Even in a close society of godly men, they could not succeed in such a situation. They could not work when, when the governor was trying to be, well, it's not his fault, the governor was just applying the charter that was given to him. Uh, the governor was the wise one, I suppose, in this situation, that men could not succeed if there was no reward for the work. A worker's appetite, says Proverbs, works for him. 
his mouth urges him on. God has appointed this personal responsibility so that when the responsibility is fulfilled, there is a reward. And without a personal responsibility comes a lack of reward. And uh, societies may still uh, continue for a little while when uh, when that line is broken, but it does not work well in the long term. The first principle that we consider is that of simple personal responsibility, that uh, we are no longer to steal, but work with our hands what is good to provide for the needs of ourselves and others. It requires us to give everyone his due, especially at work, 40 hours of labor for 40 hours of pay, to be diligent and productive, not to cheat, not to... uh, take advantage of others in any way. In biblical times, people use different weights in the marketplace, a different weight for buying and selling. Leviticus 19, in that love your neighbor chapter, it says, you shall not do injustice in judgment in measurement of length, weight, or volume. Love requires not stealing or defrauding anyone, but being productive and responsible. This is what the Lord has called us to do in the Eighth Commandment, or in a word, earn all you can. It's about uh, productivity, not about taking. Personal responsibility. Second, it requires you to save all you can, to save all you can by preparing for the future. Again, the verse from Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So I ask you each, do you have something to give him who has need? If not, you are a typical American, living not only to the limit of your income, but past it. And you need to hear this point. Americans, I say, generally live beyond our means, And as James puts it, we squander what we get on our pleasures, James 4.3. As a nation, even considering the, the land as a whole, we are borrowing trillions of dollars from the next generation every year to subsidize our present way of life. Not arguing against any kind of national debt, but clearly... We have gone far beyond any kind of wise monetary policy, that there is nothing that the next generation can do about the debt burden being laid upon them. And whatever happened to no taxation without representation? The children in the womb say, come on. (laughs) The Bible commands the very opposite lifestyle, which is my point. It says that we need to save all we can to prepare for the future needs of ourselves and others, for taking care of our parents, for leaving an inheritance for our children, not living in debt, but rather saving and having more and more abundance. A good man leaves an inheritance even to his children's children, says Proverbs 13. Now, we're thankful that we live in such a prosperous nation whose wealth and, indeed, infrastructure has been carefully built and preserved by previous generations But we've gone far past the point of spending our national inheritance. Now our staggering debt, both corporately and individually, is an illustration of our generation's unrighteous tendency to take from the future, even from future generations, what belongs to them or what ought to be theirs, rather than preparing for them a richer world to inherit. 
Also, at, as taught in the law and illustrated in the book of Ruth, God required his people to forsake part of their income and produce in the field that uh, they may have something to give, that the needy, the foreigner, and the widow may be able to come. I mean, it wasn't very much. You're not going to get rich on it, certainly. You have to work for it, but it's always there if you need it. And so there is this idea that uh, for those who have need and who have no security, it's my next point, but I bring it up here to say we need to have something extra that we may be able to give him who has need. Saving is good, but ultimately it must be for a good purpose. The Eighth Commandment teaches us not to steal, but to have something to give him who has need. Earn all you can, save all you can, and third, give all you can. We've considered personal responsibility, we've considered preparing for the future, and now practical love. Practical love. Even in business, God does not endorse unfettered capitalism. Deuteronomy 24, for instance, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who's in your land within your gates. You simply cannot take advantage of somebody economically and commercially. Leviticus 19, you shall not cheat your neighbor or rob him, but positively the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you morning. Even if it is in your power to give him, you should give him because personal responsibility and preparing to have something to give means that in practical love, you give it. Certainly you do it in business, but the Bible goes on to say that we need to save furthermore for our children, for our parents, for old age, for a rainy day. When our only goal is laying up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven, we know that we are not serving God, but mammon. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So this is not just something to be stingy about or uh, greedy. Uh, Uriah heaps. The greedy person withholds what he should be freely giving. And while God's word is eloquent in its demand for compassion toward the needy, it does rebuke those likewise who don't provide for their own and their others' welfare when it is in their hand to do so. So we must give all we can. The opposite of stealing is not mere honesty, but it is a Christ-like compassion and generosity, a life that is of giving rather than of getting. So as Kent Hughes once put it, every time I give... I declare that money doesn't control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money, end quote. And so, therefore, the Bible encourages us to have God's care and concern for the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. Give freely, the Lord says, that your heart shall not be grudging, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, in all that you should undertake. You will have an abundance and be able to give, in other words. This has a great deal to do with current events, of course, but I simply want to reinforce to you these three points, which I've given to you before. <sighs> number one, number two, number three, from John Wesley. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Personal responsibility, prepare for the future, practical love. This is the deal.
And we now return to the thrust of the series, challenging the big lies of society. As long as this system worked, including number three, of course, we uh, didn't have as many uh, problems. But uh, generosity has been decreasing. And uh, with that, a, more, a greater variety of people in need. And so opinions have begun to change. A recent Gallup poll was called, uh, published under this title, Socialism as Popular as Capitalism Among Young Adults in the U.S. Found out that 50% of young adults are in favor of socialism. Hasn't always been the case, of course. And in another Barna survey, they asked Christians, would Jesus prefer socialism? And almost twice the number of adults said yes, then no. But most said, I, I just don't know. So, you know, I mean, look, even the Plymouth Pilgrims were like, this sounds good, let's give it a try. Seems like a Christian system to me. A socialist ideology has again found a home in the church, and that threatens uh, fundamentally to change it from the inside out. Now, I couldn't find the source, but Lenin reportedly said this about socialism. He said, the goal of socialism is communism. <laughs> Today, uh, we, we don't want to use those words, and so we don't even like socialism very much unless you're feeling the burn, but most people would prefer the term social justice. Social justice, isn't that a good thing? I don't know. That's a very confusing term. I, I don't understand what you mean by that. Vo social justice was originally, by the way, a Roman Catholic term. It was coined and used first by Rome, and Rome still very clearly defines it. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has a whole section on social justice, and it summarizes it this way, number 1947, the equal dignity of human persons requires the effort to reduce excessive social and economic inequalities. It gives urgency to the elimination of sinful inequalities. Okay? Excessive social and economic equalities, elimination of sinful inequalities. Um, all the Christian faithful, according to the Catholic Code of Canon Law, are obliged to promote social justice, by the way. So, not a question if you're Catholic. Anybody Catholic here? You're in the wrong church, but okay. Uh, since the 20th century, popes have repeatedly explained the evils of income inequality and the need for wealth to be distributed or redistributed for the good of all in society. See Pope Pius back in 1931, nothing new about that. And the Roman Catholic social justice then is well explained, especially in the encyclicals of the 70s and 80s. But I'll point out that Roman Catholic theologians have proposed quite a wide variety of ways that this might take place, all the way from Venezuelan communism to charity and everything in between, reflected in the policies and the practices in majority Catholic countries, especially in Latin America, where there has been considerable interest in social justice and an attempt to bring some of the Roman Catholic proposals to bear in law. So you say, how did it go? What is the result? Well, one modern Roman Catholic scholar writes this, disappointingly. How is it that the most Catholic continent of all, South America, with an open field for continuously implementing Catholic social thought ever since 1891 should come into the 20th century with the second largest population of truly poor persons on the planet. What with so many 
structural deficiencies. He says, for all its strengths, Catholic social thought carries within it far more false turns, inner irony, and even human tragedy than its partisans, ourself included, typically address, end quote. I think that there's a great deal of wisdom to simply look at the largest continent of the earth where this has been consistently applied in a variety of ways by a variety of countries and to be able to ask why it is what it is. While Rome rightly wants all members of society to have equal opportunity and sufficient provision, the fact is that social justice policies have produced the opposite effect. The current pope even once called global capitalism the dung of the devil. Okay, so you know where he stands. And social justice worldwide has strongly tended toward socialism and neo-Marxist critical theory. I won't explain all that, but if you'd like to read more, you can get on the Communist Party USA website, cpusa.org. I don't recommend it, but you will find hundreds and hundreds of references to social justice. That's because since the 70s especially, the term has been a favorite, not merely of Roman Catholics, but now of various... Uh, political uh, uh, groups. As a secular concept, uh, Wikipedia says, it has been adopted by those on the left of the political spectrum and is commonly associated with the political forms of Marxist communism. See, that's what social justice is? I thought it was kind of this nebulous term, you know, social justice. Well, I think it is nebulous in many minds. It was nebulous in my mind. Even Kevin DeYoung has a nice couple of papers on this, but even he says uh, it really depends entirely on what you mean by the word. Well, I think we ought to be able to define words in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and probably the closest thing we have to the standard dictionary of the English language. It defines social justice with this simple entry, noun. Justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. And it gives an example use in the sentence, individuality gives way to the struggle for social justice. Practically speaking, that call for the distribution of wealth and opportunities and privileges is a call for us more and more to return to Plymouth Plantation. Um, and I, I can hear somebody say, but, but what about Sweden? Is that you? What about Sweden? <laughs> All right. Uh, Sweden had its uh, descent into a much more descent into a much more socialistic uh, uh, environment in the 70s, 80s, and uh, still to this day, 24% of the people are employed by the government. It's a huge number. Uh, since then, as any responsible website will tell you, there's been a number of free market reforms so that they now have more free trade than the U.S., a more deregulated product market than the U.S. They have no Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it's all privately uh, held then, the abolition of occupational licensing and minimum wage laws. They got rid of those, no more minimum wage. They abolished taxes on property, gifts, and inheritance. Even after our recent tax cut in the previous administration, America would have to cut its tax rate again to get down to where Switzerland now is, excuse me, Sweden now is. America would need to reform its social security by getting rid of defined benefit and go to a private account with defined contribution, personal responsibility. And the U.S. would need to adopt a comprehensive school voucher system where private schools get the same 
per pupil funding as public ones. There's still a struggle in their society to even out the 24% of government workers is a drag. It's not the most efficient sector in society. It's true. Nevertheless, you understand now why the Nordic miracle works like it does. Well, all this to say, it's a very contemporary issue. People have tried it. The Plymouth Pilgrims tried it. The Roman Catholics have tried it in a variety of ways, in a variety of countries, for over 100 years. The Nordic countries tried it and decided that <clears throat> it works better the old way. And uh, you may be wondering, what is the difference anyway between the social justice uh, concept of today, of this uh, um, redistribution of wealth and so forth, and the social gospel of a previous generation? Well, again, wanting to get just the popular explanation for this, I go to Wikipedia. The social gospel was a movement in North American Protestantism which applied Christian ethics to social problems, especially issues of social justice, such as economic inequality, poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tensions, conditions in slums, unclean environment, child labor, inadequate labor unions, poor schools, and the danger of war as opposed to social justice, which was a Roman Catholic term, Protestants preferred social gospel. And that led to differences in theology and practice. And not all, the, not all of their work and reforms were bad, of course, simply to point out that the majority of social gospel preachers 100 years ago didn't in fact believe the real gospel, which is where the problem really came in. Many opposed the fundamentals of the faith divinity of Christ, and so forth. They were uh, modernists, lately, later called theological liberals, and this led to the ultimate discrediting of the social gospel. And so today, at least in the last 40, 50 years, Protestants much prefer now the term social justice to social gospel. There's a large umbrella under that term as well, um, and so much so that even evangelicals think, well, I can distance myself from the social gospelers of the past by saying, I'm out for social justice. Who could be against social justice? Well, the problem is that when the same word is used by Roman Catholics and neo-Marxists for very different approaches to the system, um, we, we have a problem with our terminology. And we, we even uncritically receive the theology and the philosophy of Catholicism and Marxism without realizing it. So the fact that a term can be embraced so eagerly by the Communist Party USA, Roman, pro-life Roman Catholics, militant pro-choice atheists, to talk about the same issues shows the danger of using a word without defining it. In any case, my point is not to simply go down the list of ills of society simply to point out to you that the Bible has a comprehensive, cohesive understanding and direction, a moral compass on what we are to do in our individual lives and in society to make all we can, to save all we can, and to give all we can. An alternate vision of the world, one that is actually based not just upon these things in abstract, but upon the gospel of Jesus himself. And who is that Jesus? I remind you from uh, Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, 
being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we see Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, not considering it robbery to be equal with God, but laying aside that which is his by right, laying aside his self-interest in order to serve our interests choosing even to become an object of ridicule and scorn, despised and rejected of men, giving his very life that we might live. And such love cost him, well, three things. His position, he was and continued to be God, but in his incarnation, he took the form of a bondservant, of a slave. He laid aside his position. He laid aside his possessions, born in a manger, laid to rest in a borrowed tomb, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And he laid aside his position and possessions. Uh, Sorry, and his privilege, his third one. The privilege which our Lord could have rightly claimed from his creatures, he laid it aside. But the Lord rather washed the feet of his servant. The master died for the slave. This was the mind that was in Christ Jesus, for which he was rewarded, highly exalted. And so it is that uh, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This is the gospel. This is a life according to the gospel. To live lives worthy of the gospel is to have this interest of others in mind. We are not just serving ourselves or enriching ourselves. We're making all you can, saving all you can giving all you can. I do point this out to you in closing. As you read earlier, Christ was crucified between two thieves, interestingly. And Luther pointed out just how wonderful that was. Our justice system, you know, condemns and punishes anyone who's caught among thieves, even if he's not done anything himself. So Christ was not only found among thieves, but by the will of God, he chose to be a friend of sinners and was condemned with them on the cross, crucified with thieves. And you remember that there on that cross, one was condemned and one was redeemed. Well, so it is today. And this is a great comfort to anyone and everyone who's broken the eighth commandment, that the Lord himself, being found among thieves, has come to be associated with them, to be found among them, and to redeem him. The first thief to be saved was the one hanging next to him on the cross. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to that newly rich man, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is true riches. May we seek that which our Lord alone can give, the reward which awaits for all of us on high. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, you demonstrate your own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We marvel at the greatness of your love and the wonder of your redemption. We see a world that is still in need, very much in need materially, 
very, very much in need spiritually. We desire that conforming us to the image of your Son, that he indeed might be the firstborn among many brethren, that just as he did the work that you had called him to do, he considered it his food and drink to finish the work that you had given him. So we likewise pray that in this world, not merely to feed our mouths or to bring home a paycheck, but that the very love of Christ would be known and felt among us in practical ways. We, we think about uh, the desire of our country to attain greater and greater measures of economic prosperity. Our Father, we desire to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we pray that for his sake, that... Uh,